you'll find your place in verse 1, 1 John chapter 3. And while you're finding your place, I'll say a few words by way of introduction. The National Archives, there are two statues that stand outside there in our nation's capital. One is called Past, and the other is called Present. And emblazoned on the pedestal of Present is a line from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Past is prologue. Now in the play, the character who says these words uses them to express his view that everything that has taken place up to that point in the play was a prologue to the opportunity that is before him, for him to seize his destiny and seize the throne. Things don't turn out as he plans. It is a comedy after all, but they are put on that statue of present there uh, with a slightly different context, indicating the idea that we are products of our history, that everything in our history, not just individually but as a people, is rooted somehow in our past. Well, this evening I hope to offer you a different message. I hope to convince you that it is not the past that is prologue for the Christian. It is our future. Or to express the idea with a little more clarity, by borrowing the title of a book written by George Eldon Ladd, our lives as Christians are characterized by the presence of the future in our life as it is now. Therefore, we should look forward to our blessed hope, the return of Christ, with hopeful anticipation, for God uses this hope to encourage us in the present and to sanctify us throughout our lives. So if you found your place there in 1 John chapter 3, would you follow along with me as I read the first three verses? See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Father in heaven, we come to you this evening with grateful hearts for the work that you've done in our lives and for this great privilege, this great demonstration of love that you have lavished upon us by giving us this privilege to be called your children. And indeed we are. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, for this truth in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of new life that you've given. We think of Jonathan Rumley and his baptism today and thank you, Lord, for that event and praise you for the work that you are doing in his life. And Father, as we read a moment ago, we also pray for the persecuted church and we think of the people in Kazakhstan who are uh, finding it so difficult to gather and to worship you, who are persecuted uh, when they try to do so and try to share the gospel. We know that this too is characteristic of our life in this present age. We all experience the opposition of the world in different ways in our cultures, and yet we know that all of that is passing away. It all is coming to an end, for we are your children. So we pray for the church in Kazakhstan, and we pray for the church across the world, and we pray for ourselves as well, Lord, that you would remind us of this truth, that our future is prologue, that it indeed is present in our lives as we experience 
the blessings that we will experience more fully when Christ comes. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to pose three questions to you at the outset, and I want to answer those questions as we proceed through this text. The first question is this. What is one way that John says we are like Jesus as he was before his death and resurrection? And again, as we look at this text, we'll ask a second question. What is one way that John says we will be like Jesus in the future? That is, that we will be like Jesus as he is now. And the third question is similar. What is one way that John says we are becoming like Jesus now as he is now? These are the questions I hope to answer this evening as we work through the text. First, I want you to see in this text that we are children of God, but we are unknown by the world. That is the answer to our first question. We are children of God, but we are unrecognized by the world. John begins with a joyous exclamation, a momentous claim about the love of God for us. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. This is indeed an extraordinary expression of God's love for us. He's loved us by giving us the right and the privilege of carrying a new title. We are called His children, children of the living God. Now compare that with a similar situation one might encounter in this life. If we lived under a monarchy, we would have people in our nation who are children of the king or children of the queen. And by virtue of their relationship to that sovereign, they would inherit a title of no small significance. They would be princes by birth, or princesses. And the monarch would eventually confer upon them other titles, titles like duke and duchess and so on as they mature. Eventually, one of them would ascend to the throne. All of this for no other reason than that they are children of the king. Now imagine a king who adopts a child. That child also receives a title of honor and privilege, but it is conferred by virtue of adoption, not by birthright. It is no less his right than if he had the title by birthright. And indeed, he may value it even more, for he knows what it is to have a less noble parentage. And so this is the picture that we have before us. We are children of God. Just as one who is a child of a king or a queen it receives honor by virtue of that relationship. God has conferred upon us this great honor and this great privilege to be designated as His children. We should be called children of God. Now, in our case, we can see that both of those illustrations I gave you, that of some, someone who is born the child of a king and that is of someone who is adopted as a child of a king, help to us to understand our relationship to God. Paul, in his writings, uses the language of adoption frequently. So there in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 we read, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Again, in Romans 8, verse 5, he writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And one final verse from 
Paul's writings in Galatians chapter 4, one I've read many times. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We are adopted as children of God. Thus, we truly have the privilege of being called God's children, as John here recognizes. But John describes this relationship in a different way. He describes it not as a legal reality. Paul uses the legal language of adoption. But John prefers to use the language of the new birth, not because he thinks, uh, not because he thinks in a contradictory way, but he wants us to see this reality in our lives from a different perspective. John describes our relationship to God in terms of the new birth. And so we read in John 1, in the beginning of his gospel, in verse 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John would have us know that our relationship to our Heavenly Father is as legitimate as any other, for we are children by birth. But this is not a physical birth. It's the new birth. It's a spiritual rebirth that He has worked in us. And it's, a, it's related to this idea of adoption, there, that Paul and John are speaking about the same thing from a different perspective, what God has done to make us His children through the Spirit working in us to give us new life and a new title. And John shows us that there in John chapter 1 as he speaks about the right that God has given us to become children of God by being born of God, by being born again, as John will say again in John 3, as he describes Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And so we are children of God. John would have us know it's not just a title. It really is so. As he says at the end of verse 1, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now John goes on from there to say the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. You see, see the first set of meditations I've given you about being a child of God only gives us half the answer to our question. We are like Christ in that we are children of God. Of course, He is the perfect Son of God. He always has been the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. And yet, as we read in Galatians chapter 4, He came in our likeness so that we might become like Him, children of God. But I had asked the question in a very specific way. How are we like Jesus as He was before His death and resurrection? And there, to fill out the answer to that question, we need to add to it, we are like Him as sons of God, as children of God, who are unrecognized by the world. You see what John says there? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Without this encouragement, we might struggle with the dissonance of this life as children of God, when we think about children of a king in this life, they receive honor. But we in our world, in our culture, do not. 
in our particular culture, the world looks at us and caricatures us, makes fun of us, mocks us, thinks we are nothing to write home about. There's nothing so great about these people. If we said, well, we're children of God, they would laugh. In other cultures, as I was speaking earlier about Kazakhstan, the persecution can be much more severe, but still it's opposition. Still, their world, as our world, is not treating them as one ought to treat a child of God. And yet, we are encouraged to know that this is the experience, that we share this experience with Christ. This was Christ's experience in His incarnate life. He is the Son of God, but He was not recognized by the world. In the verses that immediately precede what I read from John chapter 1, we read this in verse 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. You see there, John, before he introduces this idea that we might become children of God, he makes mention of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, but the world that He made did not receive Him, did not recognize Him, nor did His own people receive Him, for they did not recognize Him either. And so we're encouraged by this fact. We're encouraged to know that as the world laughs at us, or much worse, the world persecutes us, we're only walking a road that our Savior walked before us. We're only experiencing what He experienced and what He said that we would experience. For He said in the upper room before He went to the cross, He said this in John 15, verse 18 and 19 to His disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, the world does not recognize us because it did not recognize Him as the Son of God. But in this, we see the sign of our sonship. This is a sign that we really are children of God, for we see that we share in the family likeness to some extent. And we're also encouraged to know, again, as we reflect on those words from John 1, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That those who receive Jesus as the Son of God receive the right to become children of God. What a glorious promise. What a wondrous example of God's love for us. And so we answer our first question in this way. We are now like Him as He was. For we are children of God, though we are unrecognized by the world. But the second question then, the answer is, the question is, how will we be like Him as He is? Right? As He currently is, after His resurrection, after His ascension, in His glory, how will we be like Him as He is? The answer is, we will be gloriously transformed as He is. Listen to what John says here in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. 
Now, in all of this, we must remind ourselves of something that I mentioned and spoke about last week, that we live in this period of overlap between two kingdoms. This morning, I illustrated this idea by a way of an analogy, which may be useful to remind you of. We talked about the way in which we elect a president. Every four years, I said, in November, we go to the ballot box as a nation, and we elect a president. But that person does not enter into the presidency until January. And yet, he starts to function as the president right away. He begins to select people who he will put forward as his secretaries for his cabinet. He begins to form his government. And other nations begin to look to him to try and discern how he will govern as president. In many ways, he's already recognized as president. And yet, the outgoing president still executes the authority of the office. And in the same way, when we think about our life in this present age, we live between two kingdoms. One kingdom is coming to an end. The kingdom of this world. This world is passing away, as John said in, earlier in chapter 2. The darkness is passing away, is another way in which he described it. But the light is already shining. The kingdom of heaven has already come. The kingdom of earth still continues. But one kingdom is coming to an end, and one kingdom will last forever. And we look forward to a day when the kingdom of heaven, which has come, which truly has come, will finally come into it in its fullness. And as we look forward to that day, we realize that we live in this period where we experience some of the benefits of citizenship in that kingdom, some of the benefits being children of God, but we don't experience them all in their fullness. We need to understand that reality. It will help us to understand what the authors of the New Testament are telling us over and over again. Thus John writes, Beloved, we are, children of God, uh, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We are children of God, but we will be something more. I don't mean that we will be something more in terms of something different, but we will be something more in terms of our experience of what it means to be a child of God. We will more fully experience that reality in eternity. And when will we experience that? At His appearing. That is, when Christ returns. That is what John means when he speaks of the appearing of Christ. John says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, we still struggle with sin in the flesh. We still bear the marks of the children of Adam. And yet, we are not sons of Adam anymore. We are no longer in him, so to say. We have been transferred to a new reality. We still bear those marks. And yet we look forward to a day when we will no longer struggle with sin and the effects of sin, including all of the suffering that came into the world through sin, finally in death. We will not, in that day, we will not experience those things anymore. But we do experience them now, and we struggle with those realities now. But we look forward to that day when Christ appears, and when we see Him, a glorious transformation will take place in a moment. It'll take place with immediacy. 
and it will take place because we see him. That's what John says. When he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Again, the Apostle Paul speaks in a similar way about this aspect of the Christian life. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he describes the Christian life in this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We'll come back to those first three verses. I'll say just a few words about them now. But I want to focus on that fourth verse, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Then you also will appear with Him in glory. Just as John is saying, there Paul is saying, that we will be gloriously changed when He appears. And so now we already experience some of the realities of that glorious change in our life. It's not fully experienced, but Paul can say, you have been raised. You do experience the life of a resurrected person. But that's a spiritual experience. It's an inward experience. It's not one that the world can look at and obviously see. No one outside can look at you and say, there's a resurrected person. Not at first glance. They really have to look intently and observe your pattern of life and say there really is something different about that person to see it. It's an inward reality, but it is a reality. Paul doesn't say you will be raised, though that's true in a physical sense. He will say that in 1 Corinthians 15. But there he says, you have been raised. And he says, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God but we do look forward to something yet more glorious. When He appears, we will be glorious as He is glorious. We will be pure, fully pure as He is pure. This is what we look forward to as children of God, and it answers our second question. How will we be like Him? We will be like Him in glory when He appears. Now, that third question that comes to us is this. How are we being made like Christ even now? How are we becoming more and more like Him now? And I speak again as He is. Not as He was prior to His death and resurrection, but as He is now. Now, Christ always is pure in an ethical, moral sense. He is perfect. He never was at any time stained by sin whatsoever. And yet, He did come in our weakness. He experienced all of the weakness that becomes children of man. He experienced all of the effects of sin without having any sin within Himself. When I say the effects of sin, I mean the things like pain, and the things like physical weakness, and the things like mental weakness, not knowing something, not uh, remembering something. He never ceased to be the Son of God. He never ceased to be fully God. But He emptied Himself in that He did not utilize His divine power in order to live this human life. The incarnate Son of God 
came in our likeness, exactly as we are, yet He Himself without sin, as the author of Hebrews tells us. But now, He doesn't experience any of that. He no longer experiences any sense of weakness. He no longer experiences any sense of forgetfulness. No longer experiences those effects of the fall. He has been raised. That is what He is like now. He is purified from any of the effects of the fall in terms of those physical effects. And of course, He always has been and always will be pure in terms of His sinless perfection. When we think about that aspect of Christ and what He is like, it's shocking, it's striking, it's amazing to hear John say, Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is how we are being changed even now so that we are becoming like Christ day by day, degree by degree, moment by moment, growing more and more like Him. He is pure. And the one who holds fast this hope concerning His return is one who purifies himself. We are being purified as He is pure. Christ is pure and unstained, unstained by sin. And as I have said and must say again, He always has been and always will be. In our case, our purification is a process. Now, a moment ago I spoke in a passive way. We are being purified. And that's true because I wanted to acknowledge that it is ultimately God who does this work in us. Nevertheless, John speaks in an active way. We purify ourselves by holding fast this hope. It does not deny that God is in control. It does not deny God's sovereignty in the process. But it does exclude the idea that we are merely passive observers who are called to twiddle our thumbs and do nothing. We are called to do something. Yes, this is under the sovereign control of a holy God, and yet we are called to do something by which we purify ourselves as He is pure. And that something is holding fast to our blessed hope in the appearing of Christ. This is a means by which we purify ourselves. Do you look forward to it? Do you look forward to it with words like the words that John wrote at the end of Revelation when he said after all of these visions that he recorded, Amen, come Lord Jesus. I think that many of us don't. Recently I was speaking with a friend and it occurred to me that this may be a challenge for a number of reasons, not least because we often carry with us odd views about our final state. Now for my friend, he had trouble with the concept of heaven because he found so much joy in embodied life. He enjoys working with his hands and he enjoys spending time in the outdoors. To him, speaking frankly, heaven seemed pretty boring. And one of his problems, I suggested, was that he misunderstood the nature of eternity. You see, we have cartoonish views of heaven. We think of heaven as if we are going to be some kind of disembodied spirit forever, as if we might be sitting on a cloud somewhere with a harp and really nothing to do. That's the way that our culture caricatures it and mocks it in cartoons. But that's not really our final state. Now, when we die, we will exist in a disembodied existence. We will not have bodies in heaven. 
We will be at rest and we will have joy. But it's hard for us to understand that because we don't know what it's like to live a disembodied life. But I want you to understand that that's not the final state. We will be raised. Christ right now lives an embodied life. Right now, he is a resurrected person with a human body, a glorious body, and that is the final state. We will have glorious bodies that are free from pain and disease. We will be like Jesus, not in the fullest degree, for no one will be more glorious or exalted. He is, after all, Lord of lords. But in terms of quality, in terms of purity, we will be completely free from sin and its effects. We will be completely free from the effects of the fall, and we will have glorious bodies. So indeed, we do have a glorious hope. The most glorious reality of that hope is that God will be with us in that new existence. Consider these words from Revelation 21. This is what we have to look forward to in eternity. And John there describes it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is our blessed hope, and by holding fast to that hope, we purify ourselves. It has a real effect in our lives, whereby it makes us like Christ even now. C.S. Lewis observed this when he observed a misunderstanding in his day, a misunderstanding that persists into our own, one that is reflected in the phrase that we commonly hear, the person is so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly good. It's quite the opposite, Lewis said. He said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in, Lewis says. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Now, Lewis was talking about making a difference in our world, but the point applies equally to making a difference in our own lives, our personal lives as well. The two are, in fact, related. But here is the point. We purify ourselves by eternal hope. In this way, we become like Christ as He is. For heavenly hope produces in us a desire for heavenly things. As we read in Colossians 3, 1-3 through 3 earlier, 
It involves setting our hearts and our minds on things above. And in that process, we turn our hearts and our minds away from earthly things. Our affections change. Our loves change. The things we desire change as we set our affections and our minds upon the things of Christ. We come to love the things of God. We develop a taste for the things of God. It's like a person who's learned to savor fine dishes. That person can no longer go back to eating fast food. We come to savor the things that God loves. We're no longer satisfied with the things of this world. Thus, when we turn our attention to our blessed hope, we purify ourselves. This is the life of a child of God. We are like Him as He was, for we are children of God unknown by the world. We will be like Him as He is, for we will be gloriously transformed. And while we wait through this hope, we are learning to live as children of the living God, for it is through this hope that we purify ourselves as He Himself is pure. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you once more. May we never stop thanking you and praising you for this wonderful reality that we should be called sons of God. May we never grow tired of contemplating the love you have shown us, sending your Son so that we might become your children. May we never lose our hope as we look forward to the day of his glorious appearing. We know that the fulfillment of all of our hopes come when we see Him, when we become like Him as He is. We thank You, O Lord, that this is a means that You have given us. Hope is a means that You have given us by which we might become more like Him even now. What a glorious truth. We pray that You would write it on our hearts, that You would write it upon our minds that we might be those who fix our minds and fix our hearts on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at your right hand. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.